These days, some Americans are reluctant to travel internationally. They're worried about the negative response they might receive from others who disagree with our government's foreign policy. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. I've invited Don George from Lonely Planet Publications to join me to help give an insight into this timely topic. And we'll hear your thoughts, too. Our number, 877-333-RICK, or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And later in the hour, New Orleans is putting itself back together admirably, but some parts of the city are still reeling from Hurricane Katrina. As Mardi Gras approaches, is the Big Easy ready to accommodate a flood of tourists? We'll check in with travel writer Jay Cook for his take on New Orleans. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if New Orleanians were going to say, get away from me, or if New Orleanians were going to say, hey, I'm really glad you came here. And we'll find out. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I want to talk about something that all Americans should be uh, concerned about, how Americans are received overseas. We all have our travel dreams, and we look at the evening news and we wonder, do they really want me to go visit their country right now? And we're going to talk to some travelers, and I'm joined by Don George, who's a great traveler. And Don happens to be the global travel editor for Lonely Planet Publications. This is the Australian travel publishing company that uh, publishes 600 different guidebooks covering literally every corner of this planet. Don, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. This is an important issue, isn't it, how Americans are received overseas. Uh, You work for an Australian company. You're working with uh, travel writers from all over the English-speaking world. Uh, What's your take these days on how Americans are received overseas? Well, I think that people worry tremendously about this. Americans do. And in fact, what I've always found when I travel abroad is that people in the local countries make the distinction between you as a traveler and your government. They don't necessarily assume that I believe in everything that my government does. And for me, the great example of this was a couple of years ago when I went to Jordan. This was just before the Iraq War. and In Jordan, you went Jordan, there, right? right, in the Middle East. And um, everyone said to me, don't go there. They're going to throw rocks at you. They're going to spit on you in the street. How can you possibly go there? And I thought, well, I just want to find out for myself what's happening on the ground in the Middle East. And Jordan seemed like the best place to do that. I was scared by the time I got on the plane because everyone was telling me not to go. But when I landed in Jordan and began to talk to people, I was received with incredible warmth and hospitality everywhere I went. People would bring me into their shops and pour me tea, and they would say, I just want to talk to you about America. I want to learn about America. And I was there to learn about the Middle East. So we were each other's mediums of communication and information, and it was a fantastic experience that completely reinforced for me the notion that I'm an American traveling abroad. I am an ambassador for my country, and I'm also, I want to learn by myself on the ground what's happening in that country, and they want to learn from me what's happening in my own country. And by that kind of sharing, we really increase international, intercultural understanding and appreciation. So how very important it is for Americans to continue to travel and not worry about the image abroad. And you mentioned a good point that uh, people differentiate between one group of people and their government. Absolutely. I was going to say Americans and their government, but it's not, that's not the right. issue. It's just all over the planet. People have problems with various governments, and it uh, doesn't mean they're right or wrong. They just differ with that government. And my experience in Europe is people have experienced bad governments that don't reflect necessarily the will of a major part of that, that society. Right. They've learned you don't judge people by who's running that country. I've also learned in my travels that a lot of people, especially in the developing world, Maybe not even limited to that. Just a lot of people are, are pretty fickle with their political opinions depending on the prevailing news. You know, one minute Americans can be angry as can be about a certain country, and the next minute, uh, you know, we're playing baseball with them. I remember back in the Cold War days uh, when I was traveling in places like Turkey, every year in the villages I'd get a different feeling. I'd walk down the same village one year, and they'd say imperialist fascist when they saw me, imperialist fascist when they knew I was an American. The next year, America, America. Be sexy, drink Pepsi, you know, <laughs> and it's just what's going on. Different news coming out of the whoever's the enemy of America. Right. The the important thing is getting to just sit down and talk with those people, and suddenly you're not you're not an image anymore. You're not a symbol. You're just a human being, just one human being talking to another. What do you make of Americans who uh, put a Canadian flag on their suitcase? 
I always tell people don't do that. You're, you're an American and you want people to meet you as an American. Don't ever try to set up a situation where you have to pretend to be something else. What's so liberating about travel is you're out there. You are a conduit of, of information. You're gathering information, which you'll give to your folks back home. And you're also dispensing information. And I think it's fantastic when you go somewhere and you just say, yes, I'm an American. This is what I believe. It's so liberating for some people in other countries to know that not everybody in America voted for George Bush, for example, right. just because it's important for them to know that. And I've stood in places you'd think you'd be blanketed in Canadian flags, and I've let people know I'm an American. Mm-hmm. At Hiroshima, you know, I've been right. an American. And it's we're all in this together. I think Americans underestimate the impact uh, that they can have on people in a foreign country to just um, build understanding. I, I really believe travel is one of the great forces for world peace. And we've got Millions and millions of people traveling, and if a lot of Americans are concerned about things that are going on these days, I think the most powerful thing they can do is get out there and let the world better understand us and for us to better understand the world. Uh, Rebecca from Potomac, Maryland, emailed us, and she asks, which European countries are currently considered most American-friendly? I think the most American-friendly country that, well, Britain is always our sort of partner in in these kind of adventures, and we've got some sort of a deal. You know, we stand by them in the uh, Falkland Islands, and and they'll stand by us, and and I I don't know what goes on, but to me it's very interesting that way. The most American-friendly country I've encountered is Poland. In fact, the Poles are the ones that stand by us without any question, along with older Europeans that remember World War II. Now, the Poles stand by a preemptive war against Saddam Hussein because in the 1930s, the Poles called for a preemptive war against Hitler, saying, if we don't nip this in the bud, we're all going to be in a bad state. And everybody ignored them. And Poland was the first big casualty, and all of Europe was embroiled in a war. And Poland has every right to say, I told you so. There should have been a preemptive war against Hitler. So they can understand the American uh, interest in in having a preemptive war against a guy who we figured could cause a lot of problems. Also, I've met so many Europeans that have had personal connections with GIs who who freed them from the Nazis. And they vowed then and there that they will forever be the biggest fans of the United States. Mm -hmm. But Rebecca asks, what are the most American-friendly countries? I feel very strongly that you can go anywhere in Europe as an American, proudly as an American, and not have it be a negative in your travel experience. I took 1,000 people to France last year on my different tours uh, through my company, and we asked the people after the travel experience, how were you received by the French? Nobody complained that they were received poorly by the French. In fact, the French, at least as much as other countries, make a point to come up and thank us for for the uh, shining light that we've provided to the world in difficult times. Uh, Shannon in Kirkland, Washington, is on the line. And uh, Shannon, thank you for calling. Yes. Do you have any thoughts on how Americans are received overseas? I had a laugh at what he was saying about the Canadian flag because I'm Canadian and American. (laughs) Well, I I would say if I was Canadian, I'd wear that flag. I'd I'd polish it. (laughs) No, no, I didn't mean it that way. What I have is a flag that I got at the border that has both flags on it. Mm. Anyhow, mostly um, my daughter, granddaughter, have been in um, France and Italy and Switzerland and They've done very well over there and been invited into homes. And my uh, friend just went to Korea and, um, oh, gosh, I can't remember all the places she went, but she was very well received. And mostly I've been in Ireland, and um, I was there when it was the only checkpoint we had. Is I, I don't know, I think they were looking for a cow in our car or something, but it was when they were having the problems with the mad cow. Oh, oh they're looking for cows in your car. <laughs> I think so. I hope they checked but, every little pocket. Yeah, but um, we went back and forth between north and south, and we were American, and we were Canadian, and we were whatever, and the people there are so wonderful, and they were so wonderful to us, and especially since I was driving a stick shift uh-huh. and uh, on their roads and on the wrong side of the road. And they would lead me out of places, especially the roundabouts. And um, they were so kind and helpful, and I never ran into anybody yeah. that ever was bad to me. But I also go on the assumption is that I like almost everybody, and I assume that they like me too. So I'm never unfriendly, and I never expect anything to be like it is back home. Well, that's half the battle, the attitude that you're talking about. And i, I got to say, some Americans go over there and they clench their fist and they say, um, you know... Where's Starbucks? <laughs> well, where's Starbucks? And they also say, uh, 
this is the way we do it, and this is yeah. the way it should be, and uh, why don't you figure it out? And Europeans <laughs> pick up on that very quick, and yeah. all of a sudden, you're not treated very kindly by the Europeans. They don't put up with that, and, yeah. and you can really uh, put yourself in a, in a bad situation by being ethnocentric. And i got to say, it's not just an American thing. Every country has these kind of considerations, and we have all heard about the ugly Americans, but yeah. it's, it means ugly big countries that tend to be ethnocentric. A, a little country can't be so ethnocentric. <laughs> In my travels, I've seen four countries that are famous for having ethnocentric, ugly travelers. Ugly Germans, ugly Japanese, ugly Russians, and ugly Americans. What do they have in common? They're big cultures, and they can think that they are the norm. And when you travel, we break that down, and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I I believe that, because I I really do think it it has everything to do with attitude. And if you just go along with what's going on, it's like I'm Catholic, and I was in Northern Ireland, and... They were more than happy to show me everything, even their teenagers that looked like, um, you know, a different version of our goths. Um, They were just, they're teenagers. They were friendly. They were helpful. Friendly little Catholic Irish goths. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Some of my favorites. (laughs) But they were, they, the kids especially were just so nice and, like you said, interested in what Mm -hmm. we were doing here and what um, my daughters were dressing like and Mm. (laughs) eager to tell me about their culture. All right. Hey, Shannon, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Happy travels. Okay, bye-bye. Bye now. Michael in Marion, Arkansas, thanks for your call. Well, thank you for taking my call, Rick. Do you have any comments on how Americans have received overseas? Well, I sure do. Uh, my wife and I have been traveling on behalf of a uh, of a children's aid organization for about 14 years. And, Rick, we've always kind of traveled with your philosophy, trying to get to know the locals, uh, trying to connect to people. And I remember about 15 years ago on our first travel to the Ukraine, uh, just after that country uh, became independent, we were having a little re- resistance from the local officials. Those local officials had been former communist leaders, and uh, we decided to uh, bring in sports. We invited everyone out to come to a basketball game, and uh, we saw the uh, sons and daughters of those officials come out and play us in basketball. We had fun, and uh, it was kind of a melting pot of ideas, and after that night, everything just went smooth. So you're in the Ukraine, and you're playing American sports? Yes. That's a lot of fun. I've found that sports really is a great way to get nations together. It sure is, and people just, after that game, uh, they would come up to us and talk to us, and uh, the difference between day and night, uh, because we had finally connected to them through sports. It Mm. can diffuse a lot of tension. I've been in eastern Turkey, and everybody's just staring at me, and it's a little unnerving. And my friend and I picked up a football-shaped watermelon, and we started hiking it and throwing it around. And pretty soon there was a pickup game of, of football going on. And these people, all of a sudden they realized, we're not scary. We're just a couple of goofy backpackers. And we're connecting. Michael from Arkansas, thank you very much and uh, continued happy travels. Thank you. Like any good traveler, Michael found a way to turn a negative experience around. Now, tell us your stories. How have you turned a potential disaster into a high point of your trip? 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Don and I hear more about your travel disasters with happy endings coming up next, and later, a timely guide to visiting fast-changing New Orleans. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, I want to talk about travel disasters, but travel disasters with happy endings. You know, we all have our little bumps in the road as we're traveling, and I find that good travelers sort of uh, weather those bumps, and they actually turn it into at least good memories, if nothing else. The world deals out all sorts of surprises when you're exploring it, and it's kind of like skiing. I always feel like uh, if you skied through a field of moguls with stiff knees, it would be miserable, but if you bend those knees and enjoy the bumps, it's part of good skiing. We're traveling, we're enjoying the bumps all over the planet, and I'm joined by Don George, and Don's the global travel editor for Lonely Planet with its over 600 different guidebooks. And Don, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Have you had some travel disasters with happy endings? I have had many travel disasters with happy endings. Oh, good. I do think the whole attitude is so incredibly important. I have one story from my most recent trip to Tokyo where I um, went way off the beaten track to find this sushi restaurant that was legendary. I'd read about it in many different places, and I really, really wanted to make a pilgrimage to the sushi restaurant. I got there. I got to the little winding street, got up to the doorway. The whole place was dark. It was shuttered. There was a handwritten note on the door, which I couldn't read because I don't read Japanese, but I do speak Japanese. And there was an elderly woman walking by, and I stopped her, and I pointed, and, and I said in Japanese, what does the sign say? And she said, it's closed. They're on break. And I said, oh, no, I've come so far to get to this restaurant, and now I feel so, so disappointed. And she motioned to me as if I should bend closer to her. There was nobody in the street, but she still motioned, like, bend closer. So I bent down, and she whispered to me, it's really overrated. And I said, I okay. And she said, go around the corner and then take a right. And then there's a little tiny no-name sushi bar there. Go there. So I followed her instructions, slid open the door of this little tiny, tiny sushi bar. There were eight men sitting at the bar. All there was was the counter. There were no tables. Eight jaws dropped simultaneously. People pointing at me. What's this foreigner doing standing in the doorway of our bar, that, you know, our sushi restaurant that nobody knows about? They invited me in. They made a seat for me at the counter. They began plying me with sake and the best sushi in the house. And by the end of the evening, I, I was their best friend. They were my best friend. It was a magical, magical evening just because I went that extra step of getting out of my comfort zone. You were open to get out of your comfort zone. Yep. Wow. And, and it was beautiful. And they have this thing in, in Japan about you never know how many sakis you've drank because they keep filling it up. Exactly. After just a sip, it's full again. <laughs> it's the endless sake so, stream. It's just like, uh, it's just like a part of the whole ambience. Yep. And to me, the, the, the language barrier in Japan is such a challenge uh, because we don't even have the script, right. obviously. Japan is a great place for travel disasters because people are, when you get off the beaten path anyways, people are just astounded that you're there. Yep. And many, many times when I was to Japan, I'd be standing on the corner and... I'd look lost, and I'd get help. You'd, all you got to do is kind of gaze at your map for a few seconds, and somebody right. comes up and tries to help you. Yes. And uh, I want to go straight to the phone because we have Trisha calling us from Partyville in Wisconsin. Hi, Trisha. Hello. How are you? Good. Thanks for your call. This is a town called Partyville? Yeah. It, there's no party going on, there's though. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, we're glad you're calling us. What? Tell us about your experience. Well, um, a few years ago, actually this was... 2002, we took our first trip to um, Europe, and we had chosen France. And, by the way, I read both of your books. We always go with the Rick Steves books and the Lonely Planet books, so this is kind of cool. Well, there's a happy ending. Well done. (laughs) Exactly. We went to Paris first, and on our second night there, we actually were robbed getting onto the metro. Bad, bad experience, and scary, and we didn't speak the language, and um, these were pickpockets, a group of guys that were very well organized. Anyway, long story short, um, we ended up, they got all our traveler's checks, our credit cards. (laughs) Thank gosh I had a copy of the same credit card that my husband had gotten stolen. So we at least had a little bit of money, but we really were thinking we would have to end our trip. We went to Cannes and stayed in a little uh, hotel there, and there was a young couple who ran the hotel. And they did not speak any English, but I was crying when we went to check in, even though we'd made arrangements with our credit card to let the charges go through until we got home. Um, they didn't, in fact, do that. So when I gave my credit card to pay, it was refused. So I was crying, and it was a bad scene. And I, you know, it was like my dream trip coming to an end mm. because these guys in France, in Paris, decided to rob us. So the owner of the hotel, in his broken English, was able to say to us that we could stay for free an extra night. He wouldn't charge us. He took us, he and his wife, took us the next morning in their car 
into Khan to their bank to try to get in touch with our credit card company. Turned out it was a banker's holiday, so the banks were closed. Um, that actually was when he told us we could stay free. And um, now, mind you, this was during a time when back here in the States, we were hearing on all the talk shows, you know, boycott France, the French hate us. Uh, you know, we saved their butts in World War II, but they don't care. Um, this particular hotel had a little breakfast room, and when we got back to the hotel after going into con with them, um, again, I was very choked up, and um, I said in my broken French to the owner, you know, because he told us we could stay free, oh, you know, uh, merci beaucoup. And he took my husband and I by the hand and walked us into the breakfast room, and up on the wall there was like a poster-sized blow-up of a picture um, of a little French girl handing flowers to an American GI um, after the invasion of Normandy. And um, we were very teary-eyed and, you know, thanking him, merci, merci, and he pointed at the picture and said, no, viva America!" Oh. And um, it was uh. the most wonderful experience that we ever had. And when we came home and people... You know, we told them about being robbed in Paris, and they were like, oh, my God, you'll never go back to Europe. You'll never go back to France. And I said, I would go back in a heartbeat because those people do care, and they do remember. And it was just such a total bad situation made so wonderful in, in the end. Tricia, you tell that story beautifully, well, and, and, and uh, I think it's a poignant time for as we Americans travel around the world, and just do never accept the fact that people in Europe uh, are not thankful and don't remember well, the heroics and, and, yeah. and how important it was that America freed Europe from Nazism and from communism. And right. they will never forget that, and they're forever thankful for that. And, of course, there's still independent, feisty people that have their own beliefs, and they're not going to just follow us lockstep into whatever uh, right. struggles we find ourselves in. Right. Uh, but there's not a... Um, contradiction there. They're very thankful for what we've done for them, and the concept of America is alive and well, even in countries that are flying peace flags. That's right. Beautiful. Tricia, from Partyville, Wisconsin, thanks a lot, and continued happy travels. Thank you. Yeah, you know, sometimes you don't get to really connect with the uh, beauty of other people unless you get yourself in a little bit of a jam. And then you find out people are very, very helpful. I'm talking with Don George here from The Lonely Planet. Don, sure, one of us, one of the bumps in the road you've had overseas. Uh, I, I, I've had so many. And, and I, that wonderful story reminded me a couple of years ago, I actually edited a collection of travelers' stories called The Kindness of Strangers, which is all about things like that, people getting into trouble on the road and somebody coming out of nowhere to be mm-hmm. very kind and helpful. It's, uh, I had tears in my eyes listening to that story yeah. right now. Uh, my one of my disaster stories is in Cairo, where I I have a penchant for taking the wrong turn almost everywhere. And and in Cairo, in this particular day, I just took every single wrong turn I could, and I ended up finding myself in a in a very threatening, intimidating neighborhood where men were sitting on their their doorsteps, and I was literally stepping over their legs as I was trying to get my way out of this maze, and I realized I was just getting myself further and further and deeper and deeper into trouble. They were eyeing my my watch and myself pretty enviously, I thought, and suddenly out of nowhere, a, a young boy appeared, maybe six, seven, eight years old, and he looked at me and he instantly understood that I was in trouble, and he just came up to me without saying a word. He took my hand he turned me around and he walked me out of that neighborhood and he walked and walked and walked and he walked me until we finally got to a big public square where I knew where I was. And then he just let go of my hand. He turned away. And before I could even say, thank you so very much, he just melted into the crowd and he was gone. Wow. And I just felt like I'd been touched by an angel. Whoa. I mean, he, he just sensed my, my situation, took care of me, didn't want anything in return, just walked away. You know, I'll, Amazing. I'll take it from there to Belize, okay? okay. <laughs> I, I was once with my wife in Belize, and we uh, rented a car. It was a beautiful modern car, and we were driving through the jungles of Belize. Belize is a little country with like 100,000 people, and it's just the most overgrown, uh, lush jungle kind of environment. And we wanted to get out into the middle of nowhere, you know. So we're driving down this jungle road, haven't seen a car for, for, for many, many miles. And there's, there's just, it's just a wonderland. And all of a sudden, our car coasts to a stop and it, the, the engine dies and I don't even know how to open the hood much less fix it you know and all I remember was the, the beautiful noise of the jungle 
but I'm in Belize, and I don't know which ends up, and I'm here with a car and my wife, and I don't know what's going on, and we haven't seen anybody for a long, long time. And then within a few minutes, a man pulls up in a fancy truck, and uh, he steps out of his car, and he says, my name's Gabriel, like the angel. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and and he, he opens the hood, he fixes the car, and he says, enjoy Belize. And he drives away. Oh, my gosh. And I just thought, whoa. And it is, it is so great to put yourself out there where you can uh, get into a jam so you wow. can meet those angel Gabriels Gabriel. all over the planet. That's so true. So true. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And today we're talking about travel disasters with happy endings. Even the best travelers hit bumps in the road, and you know, from my experience, the stories I hear, they turn out into be, if nothing else, fond memories. you got to expect a little, um, a few surprises as you're traveling, and uh, I think time and time again we find that the local people are there to help us. Uh, that's one thing that travel does, I think, is it gives you a positive feeling for the general goodness of people all around this uh, fascinating planet. I'm joined today by Don George, and Don is the global travel editor of Lonely Planet, uh, the uh, the big Australian publishing company that publishes over 600 guidebooks covering the entire planet. Don, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. And we're talking about travel disasters by people who don't use our guidebooks. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're talking about travel disasters among the best of the travelers. And uh, we've got uh, TJ on the line in South Carolina. TJ, thanks for your call. Uh, Glad you took it. Yeah. Now, uh, have you had a bump in the road in your travels? Oh, I've had a bunch of them, but um, had one in Egypt that I thought was pretty interesting. Tell us. I flew into Cairo a couple of days early for a tour I was going to be hooking up with, but I'd never spent any time in Egypt and really didn't know what to expect. And as Don pointed out earlier, it's really easy to get sort of overwhelmed and confused by the city of Cairo. It's very easy to be very overwhelmed. It's a huge city, and, you know, I don't speak the language, so it was a little crazy. And um, I had uh, a couple of days to kill on my own and had sort of mapped out some things I wanted to do around Cairo, but I got in in the afternoon and didn't want to waste an evening, so I wanted to go out and sort of enjoy the city and explore. But when I went down to the front, I could see that the desk guy spotted me for what I was, which was sort of an ignorant tourist. And when I asked for a taxi to uh, take me to a restaurant I'd heard about, he wanted to charge me some exorbitant amount. He said it would cost this much. And there was no way I wanted to pay that much because I'd heard it shouldn't, you know, cost nearly that much. And he basically just confronted me with, you know, and, well, you know, if you think you can do better, why don't you just go out there and try it on your own, figuring that there's no way I'd sort of step out of the hotel on my own. But I decided to go ahead and try it, and I went down and flagged a taxi on one of the main roads and was in for the ride of my life. But I had no idea what I was doing or where I was going and tried to tell the taxi driver where I wanted to go, and that didn't go so well. So he ended up taking me someplace near my destination. I got out, and it was a very unusual neighborhood. There were all these people outside sitting in the middle of the street on deck chairs and just laughing and sort of staring at this strange, you know, foreign person in their midst and couldn't figure out what I was doing there. It's kind of scary, and I thought, you know, this is just not going to end well for me. But I ended up spotting the restaurant I wanted to get to, and when I got there, I was the only Westerner, as far as I could tell, that was in the place. Uh, sat down, and the waiters came up and immediately were super friendly and started speaking what English they knew and tried to uh, pitch me on different things on the menu and started laughing at my bad attempts to pronounce the things on the menu. And it just sort of started turning better from there. I uh, ended up having a great meal, and then another customer came in, turned out to be this blonde Western woman, and uh, the waiters talked to her, seemed like they knew her, and they pointed over to me, and she actually came over to my table and started talking to me, and she had an Australian accent. It turned out that she's a belly dancer who lived at the time in Cairo and was dancing there. It was, this was a few days before Ramadan, so all the clubs were actually going to close down for a month. But she ended up sitting down with me and talking to me about the city and telling me about the club she danced at and that I should come later that night because they don't open until midnight, and you know it, they go till 5 or 6 in the morning. And basically... Just in the end, because I was willing to take that step, you know, outside and and sort of deal with some of the problems of being in that foreign country, ended up having just this incredible night, meeting all these great local people, and just basically having the time of my life. So So now that's an interesting situation there, because, TJ, you're trusting this blonde woman from Australia who's a belly dancer in Cairo... (laughs) 
You don't know what ends up, obviously. True. <laughs> I mean, I know what it's like to be wandering around Cairo just laughing at my situation because I'm yeah. completely lost. I don't know a, a word in the local language, and it just seems like an herbal jungle, and I don't have a vine to hang on, you know? Oh, and yeah. uh, when you're dealing with an urban jungle like this, uh, you fall into the arms of friendly people, and these friendly people can be very clever at getting you in a situation where you are really out of control. Absolutely. Uh, so you were with this strange woman uh, into the wee hours, <laughs> and she was actually good-hearted, and you made a lot of friends, and you went back to your hotel, and you thought, magic travel experience. <laughs> yes. But didn't you feel in retrospect that it was risky to trust her? Um, I, I know what you're saying, but what she didn't do, she didn't say, oh, you've got to come with me, you've got to go do this. She simply pointed to the club that was right down the street and said that that's, you know, where they would be open at midnight. So you sort of looked into her eyes and trusted her. <laughs> For the most part, yes, I did. And you got to do that on the road. It's yeah. a very interesting thing, because I hate to contribute to paranoia. So people stay in their hotel <laughs> and they don't trust anybody because they don't want to get ripped off. It's better to get ripped off once in a while and, and be out there exposed to the um, cultural elements. Yeah. Don, I, always, I always talk about the gut check. You you look at somebody, you assess them, you get their their atmosphere, and if it all feels right, you go with it. And in your story, even the the taxi driver, it sounds like he actually did take good care of you, and the the, the waiters in the restaurant took care of you. So a lot of things that could have gone wrong actually all ended up going right. Yeah, and I I think I partly got lucky on the fact that they were just. Maybe they they liked the fact that I was willing to step out the door and, and sort of yeah. try to get to know them and their city a little better instead of just hiding in my hotel and waiting for the bus to pick me up. But I, I know the feeling flying into Cairo, and it's like, wow, it's a free-for-all, and nobody's <laughs> meeting me here. I remember standing out on the curb, and they've got one soldier that kind of helps you get into the cabs, and he looked at me, and he just said, good luck. <laughs> and then I remember coming into town and I got this line I use in my books, uh, the, the traffic stayed in its lanes like rocks in an avalanche. There was no sense of uh, how yeah. many lanes going this way and how many lanes going that way. It was uh, sort of supply and demand, I guess, you yeah, know. Yeah. And then I got to my hotel and it was just this, it felt like, uh, you know, that sort of English patient kind of ambient sort of thing. And uh, I stepped into the hotel and, and I, uh, I just wanted a friend. And I, I asked the little boy who ran the elevator, do you speak English? And he said, up and down. Because <laughs> that's all you ever needed to stay in his work, up or down. And stepping out, you got yourself in that, that old... You know, the highlight for me, TJ, was in Cairo, taking a taxi and just hiring him for an hour and saying, old Cairo. And yeah. Turn up the music, roll down the window, and you're paying the taxi good money to drive you around, and, and you're just... Uh, it's like cruising through this uh, incredible wonder world. It's, uh, it's, it's the most vivid. I, I would love to go back to old Cairo and explore it that way. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks, TJ, for your uh, your sharing that story. Uh, thank you, thank you for the guidebooks and and keep it up. You bet. Happy travels. You too. I'm talking about uh, travel disasters with happy endings with Don George, and uh, a prerequisite for good travel is to have an attitude that when you hit a bump, it's going to carbonate your travel experience, and that'll bring you richer memories. Speaking of adjusting to disasters, New Orleans is still recovering from an epic hurricane. Coming up next, guidebook writer Jake Cook tells us how the Big Easy's doing on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're visiting New Orleans. And I have with me the man who's the editor for the Lonely Planet Guide to New Orleans, Jay Cook. Jay, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks. My pleasure, Rick. Now, Jay, what is your connection with New Orleans? Oh, well, first of all, I love it. I love it intensely. I've loved it for a long time, since the first time I, I ever visited on a, on a Winnebago with a bunch of college friends driving from Delaware to Mexico. <laughs> we visited for about three hours, and I was like, why are we going any further than this? I lived in Texas for a while, and we used to travel there for uh, opening weekend of the NFL, where we'd root on the Saints and, you know, didn't really help very much. Uh, but the other reason I absolutely love New Orleans is that it's got it's the best festival city in America, hands down. Now, of course, we're talking post-Katrina New Orleans. And for somebody like you who has a long love for New Orleans, this must be a very poignant and, and sad time. I mean, of course, for everybody, it's a, a tragedy. But you're a person who's uh, left his heart in New Orleans. And today, you have a city struggling to put itself back together. Are you hopeful about New Orleans' future as far as a, a place that can uh, still give visitors that, that joie de vivre? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I First of all, you have to have hope for it. Uh, second of all, Katrina broke my heart. But the thing about New Orleans is that throughout its history, it has dealt with really difficult situations. Obviously, this is the, the, the by far the biggest that it's ever had to deal with before. But for the traveler, if there's any silver lining to the cloud of Katrina is the fact that the 20% of the city that was spared the flooding is where the vast majority of travelers and tourists are going to go. The Garden District, the French Quarter downtown. Because those parts were saved and preserved, the city has a fantastic foundation to build on and travelers will be able to still have that great, those great fun experiences that they had before Katrina. It's incredibly profound, but it's still really also quite fun. So that, that's the pre-Civil War town that survived, that was put on the high ground. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. It's the, 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 they call it the island now. It's the sliver of high ground uh, next to the Mississippi River. Is that because the rest of the uh, land that the city is built on was not fit for building or, or swampy or, or underwater even? And then over time, they built the levees and so on. But originally, people took the high ground because it was the dry ground? That's absolutely correct. That and the fact that it was connected to the river corridor for the commerce. But New Orleans was built from reclaimed swampland. Uh, even neighborhoods that are adjacent to the French Quarter, like the Tremé, that was based. That was just that's where the alligators lived 75 years ago. When you saw the the the, the images of the the damage and devastation there, you could you would see neighborhoods that were very very upper class and you know very very lower class and. All those were built on reclaimed land or land that was protected because of the levees that failed. Now, New Orleans was a town of half a million people. Today, I understand there's about 100,000, and people predict that it might fill back out to maybe 250,000. What's your take on that? Yeah, I hear that no, those numbers as well. I think that the the numbers now are are closer to two hundred thousand. They are projecting the the city itself to have a, a smaller uh, population base. Oh, but some of the uh, outlying suburbs, the western suburbs, which did not get any uh, flooding damage, the populations there have have, have increased. That right. said, if you visit New Orleans right now, you'll be surprised at how few people there are there. Now you must feel that there's two cities. There's the city that's there and the city that's gone. Can you? Can you party in that kind of a, a situation? Are the local people wanting to get beyond it, or are they wanting to remember it? The local people, they want to tell their stories. They want people to hear them. They want people to care and empathize. I think that's a, a big part of it. This is also a situation that doesn't have any easy answers. So the, there's a natural desire to strike up conversation, whether it's with friends or people that you meet, whether those people are, are from New Orleans or, or from somewhere else. So can you party there? Well, I mean, obviously you, you really can because a lot of the nature historically of New Orleans has been, well, good times or bad times, let the good times roll. And I think that having that faith that, you know, we can't just sit here and wallow in the misery. We've got to move forward. We've got to celebrate life. That pervades in the city. And it's really the impression I got from locals when I was there. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jay Cook, who edits the Lonely Planet Guide to New Orleans. Jay, I can tell from talking to you that you care about New Orleans. And do you feel that a tourist or a visitor who cares about New Orleans is actually contributing to the salvation of the town or the resurrection of the town just simply by stoking the tourist industry? Well, unquestionably, uh, one thing you have to keep in mind is that the tourist industry is far and away the number one industry in the city of New Orleans. It's the number two industry in the whole state of Louisiana. Hospitality money directly pays for 35% of the city's operating budget. So from a, a traveler's point of view, we have to go there to spend money to support the city and help it rebound. And it's interesting. You don't get the feeling when you're there that locals think, oh, here comes a cash cow. It's not like that at all. It's more like, hey, here's somebody that understands that we've been through a really tough time, but that we still have so much great stuff to offer. And, and thanks a lot for coming and spending this time with us. It's very, very hospitable. We have this huge diaspora. I mean, half of the population is scattered around the United States. Uh, many of them really not planning on coming back. And what we have left is what I would fear would be kind of a theme park without its soul any longer. Are you concerned that the soul of New Orleans is, uh, is either gone or is wounded? 
You know, that's a really good question. And that's one of those things that we really don't know the answer to it yet. Uh, I think one thing that is for sure is pre-Katrina, New Orleans was a stronger African-American city, I think 60% of the population. And now they say that post-Katrina, it's not going to work out like that. There are going to be new people who are going to come and fill the vacuum, but increasingly it looks it's not from the African-American community. A lot of those folks have left and they're not going to come back. They may not be able to come back. A lot of those folks were renters and renters who lost their homes. They were really left out in the cold because you know, they could hardly get their security deposits back. Because that, to me, sounds like the, tra- the, the tragic uh, vision of New Orleans. You've got a party town. You've got the high ground with the uh, Bourbon Street and so on. But you've got black musicians and, and wealthy white people who own the, own the establishments and who fly there to party. Um, is that, I mean, is the mayor, when he promises a chocolate city again, uh, maybe that was just wishful thinking? You know, it's hard to say, too, because I, I think that more than really a, 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 any race divide, I think it's an economic divide that might be happening there. Uh, Mayor Ray Nagin, who's African-American himself, he was elected on a pro-business platform. He came from a, a, a long career in business. And now, after Katrina, he may very well be a, a good person to be steering the city going forward because redevelopment issues are kind of right up his alley. And some of the new development initiatives that are going forward are are pretty staggering. The Hyatt Jazz District, which is going in downtown, is going to include an amphitheater and new courts, new city hall, be connected to the Superdome, the new Hyatt Hotel. And that has some very big people behind it. The musician Wynton Marsalis is behind it. Uh, The mayor is behind it. What we're looking at is I always the the equation I make is New Orleans today is like post-war Europe Hmm. in terms of their areas that have been completely, uh, you know, they haven't been flattened, but they've been destroyed. And now there's a whole new terrain that a a new blueprint will have to come on top of it. What will that blueprint look like? I think it's going to be more expensive. More expensive and more sterile and and more just built up in a modern uh, strip mall kind of sense. I don't think, you know, New Orleans is going to go the Vegas route. And I think that was kind of a big fear in the in the immediate aftermath, uh, particularly when the idea about gambling was floated. I don't think it's going to go that way because one of the other things about New Orleans is it has always been a magnet for the creative classes, for the musicians and the artists. It's always been a magnet for people who are left to center, who want to agitate. So for every person that you find in New Orleans today that is behind uh, a new jazz district, you're going to find other people that are working at the grassroots level to help bring those people back from Atlanta or from Memphis or from Houston. So really, you've got two forces at play there that are trying to steer the future of the city. And, um, you know, they, they still have a long road to go to figure out which way it's going to lead to. And there's two forces at play in rebuilding the city. We've got to rekindle the tourist trade and, and the high ground. And we've also got to rebuild the, um, the, the flooded out bowl of the inner city. I know people who visit there to uh, roll up their sleeves and, and help these people uh, clean up and, and, and put their lives back together. They're very inspired by what's going on as people work together to help the working class uh, in the poorer districts of New Orleans really uh, get back on its feet. Oh, absolutely. Voluntourism, as, as they say, is just an amazing phenomenon in New Orleans right now. And, and it's, it's hard to go down to New Orleans and not run into people that are down there taking a vacation where by day they're hammering nails into two by fours and at night, you know, they're finding themselves down on, on Frenchman Street outside of places like DBA and they're they're celebrating the rebuilding. They're celebrating the connection because I really, if there's one thing about New Orleans too, is that it is a unique city. It always has been. It always will be in America. It's Unlike any other place in this country, it's an Afro-Caribbean culture that has got traditional Southern influences and old French and Spanish influences, plus contemporary creative and, and, and political thought. Always in that area, you're going to have people that are debating the future, but they do it in a good-natured way. And, and I think going forward, the, I hope going forward that the good nature wins out, and I do think it will. Now, this volunteerism is a fascinating concept. I just love that idea of people going down there, helping out, and it's uh, a, a very uh, gratifying and fulfilling thing to do. And then in the evening, have a good time, New Orleans style. How do people learn more about that? Well, you know, there's really there, I could refer you to two sources. Uh, one is the uh, the the website of the New Orleans Convention Visitors Bureau, NewOrleansCVB.com. 
great, great resource. The other one is our brand new New Orleans guidebook, New Orleans 4, published in November of 2006. On the back page, we have a, a special section called Rebuilding New Orleans, which links up readers with about a dozen or so different organizations that are all working to help out, whether it's the uh, the Reggie Bush Fund. He's the New Orleans Saints running back who is working to uh, restore a high school football stadium uh, or Habitat for Humanity, which is building the Musician's Village and a sort of assorted other areas. Whatever your subcultural interest uh, is with this guide, you can go down to New Orleans and help it rebuild. This is great, and we will put this on our website at ricksteves.com in the radio corner. Uh, Rebuilding New Orleans, I'm looking at it on the last page, page 320 of the Lonely Planet Guide to New Orleans. And uh, we'll get the specifics on there so people can uh, can learn how they can contribute to New Orleans as part of the tourist economy, but also in part of the rebuilding effort. We're speaking with Jay Cook, who edits the Lonely Planet Guide to New Orleans. Jay, when we're thinking about New Orleans, let's get uh, uh, into the uh, what people are going there for, the Bourbon Street, the jazz, the Cajun culture, and so on. Uh, what are the must-do experiences when you have your first trip to New Orleans? Well, first of all, if you can time your first trip to New Orleans with festival season, all the better. You know, New Orleans has gotten an amazing assortment of festivals that go on all through the year. Obviously, there's Mardi Gras, which happens in February, and then the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, or Jazz Fest, that happens in April and May. Amazing experiences. There are assorted other festival experiences as well. You can have them all throughout the year. If you're going to go just for a non-festival experience, whether or not you like architecture, you can't help but be stunned by what you see in this city. And it's interesting because whether it's the the island, the French Quarter architecture, which is the whole French Quarter is a historic district with just wonderful wrought iron gates and things like that, or the Garden District with its old Victorian mansions and stately live oak trees, whether you check out that stuff or you go into places that have been devastated, you can still see how unique the New Orleans architecture has always been. A shotgun shack, which is a house that has rooms built from front to rear, even if it's got a water line, it still looks pretty amazing architecturally. So this is interesting. My hunch is that it's just like Munich. People dream about going to Munich and Oktoberfest, but if you go there any time of year, you can go into a beer hall and feel like you're at Oktoberfest. What if you go any other time of year? Can you find that jazz and that fun-loving sort of spirit? Oh, most definitely. I mean, if you're going to go to New Orleans any time of the year, music and food are going to be two of the greatest experiences you can have. In terms of live music, there are, the thing I like about that is there are stages all over the city that you can go to that are just fantastic. They're beyond the French Quarter. Sure, you can see good music in the French Quarter as well, but it's really not until you get out to some of the, the neighborhoods that are still thriving, places like the Maple Leaf in the Riverbend neighborhood where you can see the Rebirth Brass Band playing uh, their steady gig on, on Tuesday nights, or go to Vaughn's out in the Bywater where trumpeter Kermit Ruffins likes to play his sets on Thursdays, and then between sets he cooks barbecue outside in the bed of his pickup truck and just gives it away to everybody. <laughs> that's the real stuff. You know, That's why people who go to New Orleans say, hey, wow, I think I want to move here. That stuff is still out there. And I would imagine it's much cheaper from an accommodations point of view to visit outside of festival time. Oh, definitely. And there's a really wonderful assortment of properties you can pick from. A lot of them are in the French Quarter, and you can have very old hotels, which uh, have, have great charm as well, you know, totally new modern ones as well. Uh, but you're absolutely right about the prices. Even though in the fourth quarter of 2006, the tourism numbers started to come back, and which was a, a fantastic thing for the city. The truth to be told, there, there still is a, a need for people, and there are going to be rooms for you as well, and you can get bargains. If you're thinking about the traditional culture, Cajun and Creole comes to mind. Now, these are cultures, but today they're, they're more like cuisines, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. The, the, today we associate Cajun and Creole really as the two main cuisines, along with soul food, which is kind of uh, number three. Cajun and Creole kind of describe New Orleans cuisine. Uh, in a nutshell, the difference... Creole is a little more elegant, a little more refined, uh, uh, a little more buttery taste, um, smoother. Uh, the Cajun food is more, a little more rustic, savory. Uh, traditionally, the, the Creole stuff came from the French and the Spanish heritage of a couple hundred years ago, while the Cajun was much more the food of, of the country. Today, in the kitchens around New Orleans, what's nice is you can see blends of these two cuisines and that have been created by chefs that are famous all, all around the country. And what's also great is 
because of Katrina and the lack of kitchen staffs for some of these hotels, some of those famous chefs like Paul Prudhomme are actually cooking in the restaurants again, which is really a wonderful thing. And gumbo. I actually, one story I did hear uh, from a woman, so that kind of sad, was that the only thing she regretted was losing her mama's gumbo pot because the gumbo pot is the central artifact of the New Orleans home because, you know, gumbo is the food to make. It's sort of the Thanksgiving turkey of New Orleans, if you will. So if you care about New Orleans, if you cry for New Orleans after Katrina, I think we would agree that visiting New Orleans is a very powerful way to contribute to the rebuilding of New Orleans. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing about it, too, is you gain. You gain in so many ways. I mean, A, you're going to gain because you're going to a place where there are not a lot of tourists right now. Any time with travel, that's a gain. But you also gain because you're going to be touching and connecting with people. You really are appreciated when you go down there. I, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if New Orleanians were going to say get away from me, or if New Orleanians were going to say, hey, I'm really glad you came here. You know, they didn't really say either, but they just welcomed me like they had always welcomed me in the past. And that, to me, was really where I I got, that was the cornerstone of my hope that New Orleans would come back. You know, whether the, no matter how the development plans go and whatever happens in the future with architecture, I think the people uh, and the spirit of the New Orleanians, that has not been broken, and it is what is going to bring the city further into the 21st century. A little good news coming out of New Orleans. Jay Cook, editor of the Lonely Planet Guide to New Orleans, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate it. Let the good times roll. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. You'll also find a link to post your thoughts for other listeners, to send your email questions for Rick, and to submit an original haiku for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's all in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.